These days, I am spending a lot of time thinking about just what it takes to start a worthy goal, something that is thrilling, something that is important, something that is daunting. Not only how do you start it, but how do you keep going? How do you finish it? This is Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages of a book that has moved them and shaped them. I am that MBS. I'm Michael Bungay-Stanya. And my guest today is a man who thought really hard about a very particular worthy goal, writing a book. Mason Curry is the author of Daily Rituals. It's a wonderful book. It captures how authors and other creatives go about their day, how they set themselves up for success. And that's a book that's been featured in Brain Pickings newsletter, which if you don't subscribe to that, you should really check it out. It's really beautifully written, wonderfully curated. And in fact, Mason has a newsletter, another newsletter I subscribe to called Subtle Maneuvers. And I'd highly recommend that as well. He is telling great stories in that particular newsletter. But back to writing and writing books. Mason has finished his own book, of course, but like most aspiring authors, when Mason began his writing career, he was honestly a little naive. Out of college, I thought I wanted to write fiction, and I thought the way to do that was to get like an easy day job and live someplace cheap and write in your spare time. So I got the easy day job and lived someplace cheap and then got absolutely no writing done. And um, it's sort of, you know, I'm just... I. I just have always kind of wondered, like, how do people do it at a really basic level? You know, like, what? how do they carve out the time and how do they keep up their energy and enthusiasm and resolve? But Mason didn't give up. And he tapped into the power of rituals for creativity in a pretty unorthodox yet quite powerful and simple way. In fact, you could probably duplicate it yourself with a little effort. When I was first writing the Daily Rituals book, I um, was living in an apartment that got very cold in the winter. It was poorly insulated and um, kind of got in the habit of like wearing a hooded sweatshirt with the hood up because I was cold. It's like, I kind of got used to that feeling. Like if you have the hood up, it's sort of like wearing blinders. It's just you and the screen or you and the page. And um, I kind of got used to and hooked on that. So now, even though I live in LA now and it's not cold at all, I, I feel like I need something up. Even if it's not the full hood, I need like a collar or a scarf or something to sort of like create this feeling that I associate with that one productive period. In Mason's book, he talks about rituals that literally keep artists working, keeps them doing the work, whether it's getting up early or staying up late, lots of coffee, long walks, honestly, all of those I've done, because really it's whatever works for them. It's important for them to get in the right mindset, one that is both fragile and fleeting. And we'll talk more about that. But first, Mason's book choice. You know, when he told me what it is, I was like, ooh, that's not, that's, that, that's a little heavy. And it's true, it's a philosophical work. It's at least 100 years old. But what drew Mason to it was something familiar, hyper-realistic daily routines. He's chosen The Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann. And the scene he chooses is when the protagonist is jarred out of his own daily routine. To set it up, this is a scene where the hero, Hans Kostorp, and his cousin, whose name is Joachim, are um, meeting with the sanatorium's director uh, to have their chests x-rayed. They meet in the laboratory, all the lights go off, and there's this crackling, vibrating uh, machine full of tubes. And 
in this scene, the director is looking at this fluorescent screen in the dark, and Hans Kostorp is looking over his shoulder at his cousin's x-ray. I think these are two pretty haunting pages. So here's Mason Curry reading The Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann. Take a deep breath, the director commanded. Deeper, I said deep. And Joachim's diaphragm quivered and rose as high as it would go. The upper parts of the lungs were brighter now, but the director was still not content. Unsatisfactory, he said. Do you see the helum there? Do you see those adhesions? Do you see these cavities here? That's where the toxins come from that make him so tipsy. But Hans Kostorp was preoccupied with something that looked like a sack, or maybe a deformed animal, visible behind the middle column, or mostly to the right of it from the viewer's perspective. It expanded and contracted regularly, like some sort of flapping jellyfish. Do you see his heart? The director asked, lifting his giant right hand from his thigh again and pointing an index finger at the pulsating pendant. Good God, it was his heart. Joachim's honor-loving heart that Hans Kostorp saw. I can see your heart, he said in a choked voice. Please, go ahead and look, Joachim replied again, and he was probably even smiling meekly up there in the dark. But the director ordered him to be silent and not exchange sentimentalities. He studied the spots and lines, the blackish ruffles in the chest cavity, while his fellow viewer gazed tirelessly at Joachim's sepulchral form, his dry bones, his bare scaffolding, his gaunt memento mori. He was filled with both reverence and terror. Yes, yes, I see it, he said several times. My God, I see it. He'd once heard about a woman, a long dead forebear on his mother's side of the family, who was said to have been endowed or cursed with a troublesome talent that she had borne in all humility and that had caused her to see anyone who would soon die as just a skeleton. Which was exactly how good Joachim now looked to Hans Kostorp, although with the aid and under the auspices of physical optics, so that it did not really mean anything and was perfectly normal, particularly since he had expressly obtained Joachim's permission. And yet, he felt some sympathy for the melancholy fate of his clairvoyant great-aunt. He was deeply moved by what he saw, or more accurately, by being able to see it, and he was also stung by secret doubts. Whether it might not be somehow abnormal after all, doubts about whether it was permissible to stare like this amid the quivering, crackling darkness. A deep desire to enjoy the indiscretion blended with feelings of compassion and piety. A few minutes later, he himself was standing in the stocks while the, while the little thunderstorm raged, and Joachim, his body closed from view again, began to dress. Once again, the director peered through the milky pane, but this time into Hans Kostorp's interior, and from his mutterings, ragtag curses and phrases, it appeared his findings corresponded to his expectations. In response to much begging, he was kind enough to allow his patient to view his own hand through the fluoroscope. And Hans Kostorp saw exactly what he should have expected to see, but which no man was ever intended to see, and which he himself had never presumed he would be able to see. He saw his own grave. Under that light, he saw the process of corruption anticipated, 
saw the flesh in which you moved, decomposed, expunged, dissolved into airy nothingness. And inside was the delicately turned skeleton of his right hand, and around the last joint of the ring finger, dangling black and loose, the signet ring of his grandfather, the signet ring his grandfather had bequeathed him. A hard thing, this ore with which man adorns a body predestined to melt away beneath it, so that it can be free again and move on to yet other flesh that may bear it for a while. With the eyes of his great aunt's forebear, penetrating clairvoyant eyes, he beheld a familiar part of his body, and for the first time in his life he understood that he would die. And he made the same face he usually made when listening to music, a rather dull, sleepy, and devout face, his head tilted toward one shoulder, his mouth half open. The director said, Spooky, isn't it? Yes, there's no mistaking that whiff of spookiness. That was fabulous. That was just wonderful. Thank you. Um, I loved how it just felt like you were moving back and forth between different worlds, like kind of reality and, and the crackling thunderstorm and fluorescent skeletons. You're moving back and forth in time, being present with the director now, muttering and cursing, but also seeing your grave in the future, but also seeing the connection back to the grandfather with the signet ring. It really felt like a, a you know, it's a, it's like, it's like the matrix. It's like time and space kind of warping and expanding in that kind of single couple of pages there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that came across because that's kind of one of the great themes of the book and one of the great tricks of the book, the way time contracts and expands throughout it. You know, one day takes 150 pages and then as the book goes on, holy years go by and short periods of time and um, there's a lot of talking about the nature of time and the nature of boredom and how we fill time and um so yeah this is a moment where that comes together with space with the body um it's also a moment where you know he's he's at the sanatorium he's surrounded by death one of the very first things he's told as he's riding up to the sanatorium by his cousin is you know uh, when there are dead bodies, they send them down by bobsled um, in the in the snow. And Hans Kostorp is kind of horrified. He thinks that's like indecent to talk about that. And the cousin is kind of like, well, that's just the way it is up here. Um, but this is the first moment. It's like the mortality really intrudes into this book that's set someplace where people are dying. I'm curious to, I mean, is it that sense of mortality that that kind of seems resonant and kind of influential? I mean, you talk about in so many of your work, you talk about artists doing their best work, trying to live their best life. Um, and knowing that we have this kind of, you know, short time on the mortal coil before we shuffle off. Andrew Marvel wrote at my back. I always hear times winged chariot hurrying near. I'm curious to know whether that's playing a place in, in the way that you show up in the world. Yeah, I guess I haven't really quite thought about it in that way, but that does feel, um, <laughs> accurate and insightful um yeah i mean why is our time you know our time is valuable because it's so finite and the reason i'm interested in how people use it and organize it is because um you know it's a limited resource and like how you protect it and employ your energy plus your time um is just a fascinating subject to me so yeah. i do think it's mortality that kind of 
gives it a framework and makes it interesting. It's kind of related, I guess. Um, there's a, a writer called Kevin Kelly, who I'm not sure if you've ever come across his stuff. He writes nonfiction and he's been influential in, in the tech tech sphere as well and other places. Um, he has, uh, I think he calls it his date of reckoning, which is that you can, through actuarial tables, calculate your date of death. Which is like, you know, statistically, this is the date I'm, I'm likely to die on. And I've done that. It's September the 15th, 2043 for me. And oh I've God. done that as a way of kind of going, all right, Michael, <laughs> it's 2021, <laughs> that you've got 22 <laughs> years left technically. Um, Kevin Kelly says you've got one big project every five years. Um, so I'm like, okay, so what does that mean? Four projects left, maybe five if I'm lucky. <laughs> so wow, yeah, it's, it's, it's an attempt to um, remind myself about what I'm trying to, trying to work on and how to have the courage to work on the stuff that matters most to me rather than what just floods in and fills my day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. I um, I'll have to look up the actuarial table. Some <laughs> I do think in terms of like you know I can probably complete two big projects a decade. So the same thing you're talking about, you know. So you have I'm I'm, I'm I turned forty recently, so I have you know two, four, six at the most. You know, I mean, you know, like it's um, and I think also we're all racing against the dwindling of our energies and concentration power. I mean, I hope it's not, that's not the case, but you know, I already feel a little bit less <laughs> energetic and yeah. sharp than I might've, you know, 10 years ago. There felt something in the, in the, the pages that you read from the magic mountain about a this kind of transition into another world. How does that have influence or cast a shadow in terms of how you think about the work that you do? I think there's a real, um, tie in there i mean my books are about how people made the time and the space to do creative work and you know ambitious long-term creative projects um and in particular like how they did that on a, on a daily basis what kind of rituals they engaged in and i think um a lot of it is about how you I feel like doing this kind of ambitious creative work requires a certain state of mind that is somewhat fragile and, and fleeting that um, you can't just be like paying your bills and then swivel your chair and instantly start writing a novel or composing. Right. Um, you've got to kind of walk yourself into that space and you've got to really protect it from interruption and distraction. And so, um, you know, you look at someone's typical day and you get, get a sense of their personality and their temperament and just how they kind of used their schedule to combat whatever obstacles were in their way and also how they used it to um, counteract their own worst impulses. You know, so the procrastination prone person might have a very strict schedule to try to short circuit that. Um, so this is a book about in some sense being transformed through rituals or, or, you know, there's a great, the scene I thought about reading was um, all the patients at the sanatorium do these rest cures where they sit out on their balcony and on these lounge chairs and they wrap themselves in um, these blankets. And there's a very particular way. It's kind of a famous scene. Um, it's two camel hair blankets and they wrap themselves from, you know, the neck down to the feet right. in this very particular practice motions. And, um, and then 
after you do that, you kind of can sit back and contemplate the view. And you know, the, when Hans Kastorp does this, he sort of gets into this other state of mind, uh, the sort of dreamy, contemplative state of mind. Um, and uh, I think that's kind of what my books are about in a way. It's like how you sort of walk yourself step by step from your everyday prosaic paying the bill state of mind into this state mm. of mind where you can do this deeper thinking or, or um, be, exp- you know, experiment, um, improvise, you know, be sort of out of the normal flow of time. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's an interesting book that's just come out on the power of ritual by a guy called Casper uh, Takul. Cute. I think is how you pronounce his surname. I think it's called the power of ritual. Are there rituals that you use to kind of move, keep you in this? And I love the phrase you use, fragile and fleeting, that kind of fragile and fleeting state of mind where you're in that penumbral state, you know, in between shadow and light um, where creativity can and most flourish. I'm wondering if there's any, any structures or rituals you build to help you with that. I mean, I mentioned the getting up early, which is my, yeah. like I said, my one dumb trick. And, I think and the hoodie. For me, the hoodie is a, and a, the hoodie. a ritual as well. Yeah. <laughs> or lately it's been sort of a scarf. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I mean, for me, I'm always trying to calibrate between sort of forcing the work and not forcing it too much mm. because you do have to kind of discipline yourself to sit down and do the work. I don't think that it, you can wait around for inspiration to strike. And my research has kind of backed that up that, um, yeah, you know, the, I think inspiration comes through the work rather than the other way around. Um, Love that. but at the same time, if you're too rigid about it, if you really are like forcing yourself to sit down and grind it out, um, that can produce really bad work and, um, can, um, make you more stuck and just sort of, you know, it takes the fun and the improvisation and the sort of it sucks the spirit out of it. So I, I think it's yeah. all about kind of surfing that, that fine line. You, you, you got to get yourself to work, but you also have to know when to like cut yourself some slack and, and how to kind of refresh your, um, whatever you want to call it, your inspiration or just whatever it was that brought you to this line of work in the first place. Like how do you stay in touch with the enthusiasm and um, joy of that? Well, maybe there's a connection there. When do you start showing your work to other people? Uh, I've just been in the process of showing people the first draft of this book that I wrote and it was, you know, it was terrible. (laughs) I mean, it was useful. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> profoundly useful and also profoundly terrible at the same time. Because, you know, something like, this is pretty good. You know, my friend Misha was like, I've read 35 pages. The first 35 pages of your book, I have no idea what it's about yet. I'm like, ah, oh, that's the wrong answer. That's, that's very helpful to hear and it's the wrong answer. You know, when, when, um, when do you first yeah. share writing with people? And, again, how do you hold yourself so that you can be fragile and open but not – shattered i mean that's something i've been thinking about recently i um actually recently did this online uh writing workshop with the canadian writer um sheila hetty who who's writing mm-hmm. i love um she you know it was like a saturday sunday six hour total workshop where she talked about how she kind of gets herself out of creative problems and um, one of the things that she talked a lot about was she chose drafts to a lot of people like hundred people and she sends it to everybody she'll send something to her mom she'll send something to her friend she'll mm. she'll just ask people you know will you read this and she doesn't 
you know, she, she shows it to writers, but she also shows it to just like her aunt or, you know, like whomever, right. um, because she doesn't just want a literary response. She just wants a reader's response, a human response. Yeah. And she said she's had to just really suppress that part of herself that feels like this fragile, delicate writer who's going to be broken by any, um, you know, criticism. And that basically she feels like she had this great thing. I can't really do it justice, but she feels like art is a kind of material that when it's beaten, it gets stronger rather than getting weaker. Um, right. That all this can only strengthen the work if you can just stomach it as a person. And she basically has found that she can, you know, and it gets easier. So um, I have habitually been the kind of person who shows my work to almost nobody. <laughs> you know, I, uh, the, the Daily Rituals book, I, I let my wife read it in, when I feel like it's getting close. And then right. my editor really preferred to just read like a complete thing. She wasn't really into reading like a lot of Early drafts, partial yeah. drafts. So it was basically like my wife would read it in pieces. And then my editor would read like the complete manuscript. And um, I wasn't getting much feedback along the way. So uh, it kind of ties back to the my newsletter, which I started last year, which is my attempt to be a little bit more in a dialogue with readers. Um, mm. Not planning to like, share drafts of the book but i am planning to um share a bit about what i'm reading and what i'm thinking about and um not be quite so precious about uh the work in progress um mason there's a, a question i love to ask at the end which is this what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation for you hmm. i guess what i'd like to say is that the Magic Mountain has this reputation as an inc incredibly difficult book that that people might be frightened to pick up, and um, it's really it's really not. It's a fun read. I mean, it's it's not um, the the writing itself is not difficult at all. Um, it's quite straightforward, and it does get a bit dense with ideas and characters who kind of hijack the novel and talk at great length and have these long arguments that can be a bit of uh, a bit trying, but. Um, like I said, if like if you stick with it, I think you really get brought along to a different place than where you started. So um, I, I encourage people to pick it up. I mean, it does sound it 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 feels like it the way you framed it right at the start, which is like it's transformative in the same way that your the lead character is transformed. It feels like it has a transformative effect on the on the reader as well. Yeah, it also. Uh, this may be a leap too far, but it made me think of um, somebody like like Gabriel Garcia Marquez in A Hundred Years of Solitude, or maybe Isabel Allende in her um, Eva Luna and the stories of Eva Luna, which are these kind of magic realists set in South America, broadly speaking, and how those worlds kind of pull you in and seduce you and feel different and separate and real and unreal all at the same time. And as you described the Magic Mountain, it felt a little bit similar in that kind of, this is a new, different world. Yeah, I think there is some influence there or a thread that connects those. I think, I think magical realism might have gotten a bit overdone a bit in the, at a certain point in the 90s or early 2000s. And yeah. um, I, when I think of it, I kind of think like, oh, no, I can't deal with another character who, I don't know, sprouts wings or um, <laughs> like can see the dead or something. But so I feel like this book does it in a very controlled way. It doesn't feel magical realist. It's like okay. extra real, super real. You know what I mean? It's never yeah. quite fantastical. It's just like heightened reality, which um, is, I think, harder to pull off and yeah. maybe more of a special experience. 
I really did love how this conversation seemed to move from, you know, really big questions around mortality and what are we going to do on this planet and the time that we have to, I don't know, should I wear a hoodie or not wear a hoodie when I'm trying to write my next book? And if I'm honest, it's probably the mortality that I'm sitting with now. The hoodie, you know, I can take or leave that. I'm, I'm wearing a hoodie right now, but I've written books with hoodies on. I've written books without hoodies on, whatever. The clothing is obviously not that important to me. What I'm really sitting with is actually less about me and my worthy goals and what I'm up to with my writing books, although it's resonating there as well. It's really the hope and the wish that you hear in this conversation a call to do your own worthy goal. Look, it might be writing a book. I mean, there's lots of people who say they want to write a book and lots of people never get around to doing that. Sometimes we inherit that goal. Oh, I should write a book. And it's actually not the right worthy goal for you. But I really think that we hold within us this capacity to do a worthy goal, something that is thrilling, something that is important, something that is daunting. And whilst I hope you don't get a, a too great a shock to your mortality in COVID times, maybe that's a little too close for comfort. But it is true. We have a limited time on this planet. And I want you to squeeze the lemon. I want you to get the most out of this time. And not just for you. This is a selfish request. I'm really committed as kind of my bigger game is to try and get other people committing to, to starting and continuing and seeing through their worthy goals for their sake and for our sake. I know my life will be better. I know your community's life will be better. I know your family's life will be better. I know your life will be better if you're willing to look at a worthy goal, something that will stretch you, something that will inspire you, something that will light you up, something that will give more to the world than it takes. That's what I'm sitting with after this conversation, a reminder. <laughs> Thomas Mann was talking about it a hundred plus years ago, which is life is short, life is fleeting. It's so easy to get stuck into the, the routines of our everyday lives and that call to step boldly into something new, something important, something thrilling, something daunting. If you'd like to learn more about Mason and what he's up to, and like I say, I can really recommend his newsletter. I think it's terrific. You want to go to masoncurry.com. That's M-A-S-O-N-C-U-R-R-E-Y.com. Hey, thank you again for listening to this podcast, Two Pages with MBS. I am always thrilled that people are listening to it. I'm particularly thrilled that people are getting to the end of these conversations and listening to me now. If you're that person, if you're into it like I think you are, I hope you'll consider joining our free community. It's called the Duke Humphreys. It's named after the coolest library at Oxford University where I happen to go. It's a library within a library. It's within the Bodleian Library. And, you know, when I was there, it was really my favorite library because it was the place where the rarest and most extraordinary books were kept. You had to put on gloves, you had to sign a waiver to say that you weren't going to do anything dangerous. You were led in by a custodian. It's a really special place, as is our online community. It's totally free, but you'll find their transcripts and unreleased episodes and a good deal more. We're continuing to add there on a day-to-day -day basis. So you'll find the Duke Humphreys and the invitation to join at the URL 
mbs.works slash podcast. And indeed, this podcast grows by word of mouth. So if this conversation with Mason has struck a chord, if you know other people who are looking for ritual, looking to commit to a creative act, looking to be hungry for a worthy goal, and you think this episode is helpful, please pass it along. Just recommending it to one other person can make a great difference. More subscribers means more ability to get more cool guests and that helps you. And of course, it enriches my life as well. I love these conversations with these interesting people. And if you're willing, a rating and a review on your podcast app of choice is always deeply appreciated. You're awesome and you're doing great.